So just before we get started, um, it's very informal. This is, Worldcon is one thing, we're just going to hang out with Steve and we're going to ask him some questions. Um, we're going to go through a list of stuff here. We're going to see what Stephen has to say. At the end of it, we'll put it to you guys. You guys have any questions, we'll put it to him. When it's all over and done with, we're going to do some signings, then we're going to go upstairs and we're going to drink some points. Is that everybody happy? Yeah. Yeah? All right. We'll keep it very sociable, okay? So first things first, where did this come from? And what's wrong with you? Um, that will take more than one night. Uh, let's see. Um, where did this come from? It came from gaming. Um, myself and Ian C. Eslamont were uh, both archaeologists and we met on a day and um, I knew nothing about D&D, uh, &D, but he did. Uh, he'd spent most of his university uh, playing D&D &D instead of going to class. And, um, but he talked me into it and the first game I ever played was on the site, so we were in a camp on the side of a lake. and. Um, Unfortunately, we smoked way too much dope, so um, the game was a complete disaster. And, and, uh, and then it took, it took uh, I guess, about another half a year before Cam ended up joining me in Victoria when I was taking a writer's program. Uh, and uh, we shared a flat, so we started gaming. And both being archaeologists, both being anthropologists, we wanted to make sure that our fantasy world was, was internally consistent in terms of uh, cultural evolution, civilizations, all that kind of thing. And so that's what the gaming basically involved. And there was times that we gained entire sessions. How many people here play role-playing games? All right, you all know. <laughs> we would play an entire session, so it'd be six hours where nobody pulled a sword, nobody cast a spell, it was nothing but conversation. And that conversation is what created the characters like Whiskey Jack and, and Cotillion and Kellenbed and, and all of these people. And so when it finally came time to actually write the, the stories, they were, they'd been alive in our heads for, for years. And I think that came out onto the page. Mm -hmm. um, but actually in some ways to our detriment because it left everybody lost. We knew them, but nobody else did. <laughs> Um, so what I've got, I've got a bunch of questions here that people put up on the uh, Malazan Empire page on Facebook. And I've taken a few of them, and I've taken a few from other sources as well. So I'm going to hit you with a couple of these, and you burn through them as quick as you can. Just ask me, don't hit me. Well, <laughs> so what sort of emotional toll does writing a sequence like the Chain of Dogs take? Do you have a self-care routine afterwards? <laughs> Did you cry right now? That's a great question. Um, I cry it. Oh. I didn't write it. Yeah. yeah. What kind of toll? It was, it was extraordinary. Um, it took eight years to find the publisher for the first one. So it was... Um, I'd almost thought that... Uh, I almost began to believe the editors who were turning the books down. Um, basically saying there's no audience out there for this, and too complicated, too many characters. Um, and so I ended up um, moving to the UK, uh, moving to England, because I thought actually that audience, the UK, uh, Great Britain, whatever, is going to be more sophisticated than the American audience, because the American publishers were all turning this down. And I had a, a five-year plan to find an agent and uh, get the first book published. And I managed that in three years. So, um, and it took us another three years after that to finally twist uh, the arms of a publisher in the US. And to this day, my, my biggest royalty checks come from the States. So uh, if there are any beginning writers out there and, and editors turn you down, fuck them. <laughs> they don't know shit. They don't know shit. Um, so, and, and so it was 11 years um, from the last revision of Gardens to the completion of uh, The Crippled God. And um, I was living in Falmouth and Cornwall when I finished. I was writing in a Cafe Nero. And I uh, looked out the window with the last lines delivered on the, on the screen. And it was like this immense weight just lifted off my shoulders that I didn't know was there. And um, there were times, uh, I mean, I'll probably tell this story at some point, but between book, the writing of book nine and 10, uh, I did some archeology span in Mongolia that nearly killed me. And uh, I got very sick. Uh, goat's head soup. Um, the goat's head lying on the ground for three days before it showed up in the soup. 
And um, I remember thinking, I was sitting on, on, on a bus um, going through northern Mongolia back to the Limbator, a 10 hour, 10 hour bus trip. And I was thinking, if I die now, because I've been bit by a spider as well, so I, it just goes on and on. It's the stupidest thing. Um, if I die now, between book nine and 10, wherever my gravestone is, it's going to be annually pissed on. <laughs> and so I was desperate, desperate to get back and to finish the book. And that's what I did in Cornwall. And I uh, got it done. And it was just, um, in terms of sort of handling the aftermath, um, I don't know if I handled it well. I thought, okay, I'll take a bit of a break. Uh, you know, I've been writing, I wrote, I wrote what, 3.2 million words in, in 11 years plus. And uh, so, okay, I'll take a break. I, would, I took the break for uh, three days. <laughs> so, and then I started on the next one. So, anyways. Have you ever reread any of your books? And are there Fuck any no. characters? They're <laughs> <laughs> too long. Yeah. Um, are there any characters that you wish you chose a different fate for? No. No, you no. Were, they were all nailed. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew, I knew so where they were going or not going. Yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. So tell me this once, since word of mouth is such a large. Oh wait a minute! No, I take that back. Actually. Oh yeah. Who? The character of Trell Sengar. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know where, where that was going until about twenty pages before I got there. So, yes. Anyway. So since word of mouth is such a large factor in people finding this series, do you think the internet has helped massively? Yeah. yeah. But it's changed the relationship between the writer and the, and the audience. And I think a lot of writers, uh, at least of my generation, or, were initially quite resistant. Um, they like that aloofness. They like to stay away from and, and not be in, necessarily in contact with, with uh, the fans of their books. And I just I, I realized early on that that's, that's ridiculous. You, you want to be in contact. You want to actually um, find out what they're thinking. And, um, and so I, I sort of embraced that very quickly. Um, is there still a Malazan encyclopedia planned? Of course it's planned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's planned like Brexit is planned. Why? <laughs> There's been no movement. It's just, it's going to be this size. Yeah, well, I, Cam's a lot better at archiving his material than I am. Yeah. And um, I have, I actually got somebody to come in and archive that stuff. And that's sort of the beginning of, of putting it all together for an encyclopedia. Okay. So you've said before that compassion is the main theme yes. of the Malazan series. Will the theme <clears throat> differ in the coming tr trilogy, or you gonna stay in that? Uh, which coming through the trilogy? Oh, I've got, got two. Uh, you've right? got two. You've got you've got yeah. one you didn't finish. Yeah. All right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Don't worry. So if you're going to approach someone like Carsa. Like who? Like Carson Arlong. Are you going to come at him from Carson. a compassionate point of view, or yeah. are you going to go full Conan? No, no, I won't go full Conan. No? Uh, no, and I've already warned people that the Carson trilogy, the first book, doesn't even have Carson in it. Really? Yeah. Oh, Interesting. oh don't go off. <laughs> there's, the thing with Carson is there's a legacy. There's a huge legacy. He's left wreckage in his wake, <laughs> and that needs to be explored before I can actually get to Carson again. Okay. Do you see an end to this world? Do you um, see? Do you think it could spiderweb infinitely, if you wanted it to, or do you think it should have an absolute definite end? Say no. Um, <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, I'm signed to do three more Bokele and Corbo Brooch novellas. Um, and then I've got, I've got the, the third book in the Car Carcanus trilogy to finish, um, which is going to be massive. Okay. Um, and then I've got the Carson trilogy, which is basically, it's more along the lines of Esteban's latest um, books, because um, it will be one giant novel I split into three. Okay. Um, and then after that, I'm not, certainly not signed for anything, and I don't know, I don't know, because the last novel I've written was a science fiction novel, and I do want to follow up on that as well. But, um, I'm getting old, guys. <laughs> <laughs> You're not well, getting old. Um, so you said one of your biggest inspirations for writing this series was uh, Stephen Donaldson's Chronicles of yes. Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever. It's the biggest name ever. It's shocking. Um, have you ever read Stephen? 
Sorry, I've never met Steve. We've become very good friends. Excellent. Yeah. Much to my amazement. Yes. This is one thing I've since I started reading these books, and this is a, a very much a sidetracky thing. Would you like to write something in that universe? In Donaldson's universe? Yeah. No. No, you just leave him be. Yeah. It's one thing. There's just connections, not necessarily in theme, but in feel between the two series, and I always felt that. There's certain series of books that I'd love to see some, like an outsider's perspective perspective mm-hmm. of. I'd love to see somebody not live in his brain write that world, if you get me. And yeah. I think you are one of the people I would love to see attempt to write something in that. Well, in, in terms of influence, my, my major influences within fantasy uh, was basically Glenn Cook and Stephen Donaldson. And Donaldson came first. But So my writing style is a blending of those two. And um, uh, Steve's, I've gone back and reread the first six books. Yeah. Uh, and I've read the uh, completion um, of Thomas Covenant uh, series. And those first three books, they are the most lactinate style you could imagine um, in terms of writing. And I know I've, I've sort of, I remember reading them and having a dictionary at hand because I needed it. Yes. And uh, that slipped into a lot of the style of my writing. Mm. But what I loved with Glenn Cook was the terseness and the brevity of his writing and the fact that it was on boots on the ground soldiers. And so it's kind of pulling in stylistically, you pull in the high fantasy and the high language of Donaldson and um, drag it in, drag it through the dirt, basically. So we've read rumors about TV shows and movies and all sorts of variations on your work. Is there, aside from anything that may have happened or been cancelled in the past, yeah, I got cancelled. Would you like <laughs> to see it on the screen or on video? We got, we got as close as you can get, but at the same time, we dodged a bullet. Mm. And I'll explain the story. Is this the Weinstein story? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know the story. Yeah. Well, if you all know the story, then this I'll is good. explain it. Shock yourselves. All right, we, we had signed a contract with a, a major producer, and um, we were waiting on the option check to be signed by that producer. It sat on his desk for about six months, and then everything was canceled. And that was Harvey Weinstein. And that was right before the shit hit the fan, um, and the Weinstein group went under. Had we sold the rights, um, we would still be in a legal nightmare now, because that property then that would have been picked up by the nearest debt collector you could, you could think of, and, um, and then we would, have been, we would have been screwed. Because the contract, you have to bear in mind that when you sell something like uh, one book or three books from uh, an extended deal, like, or, or from a series that's extended, um, that company basically owns all television film rights for the entire world, the Malazan world. So it was 38 properties when we finally worked it all out. Um, and that would have just really screwed us over. So we dodged the bullet. And, and now we're just we're, we're still marketing it and we'll see what happens. I Personally, I think it could work extraordinarily well in some, like a video game like The Witcher, where you can just kind of go wild with it. Yeah. And then let the toils fall where they will kind of afterwards. But before, well, yeah, well my, my super ambitious plan, which will never happen because nobody has, well, the people who have the billions of dollars are not interested in this, but I wanted to do, television has stolen a lot from film, right? Uh, visually, um, narratively, uh, and, and, and of course, the big screen has suffered because it's, it's, it's coming up against the competition of television. Television writing is actually superior now to film writing, by far. Um, what I wanted to do was basically turn each novel of the 10 book series into a trilogy of films and to then release um, 10 films a year for three years. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would have been pretty cool. It would have been pretty cool, but nobody will do that, obviously. Who's playing Whiskey Jack? Sorry? Who's playing Whiskey Jack? I haven't a clue. Uh, no, I don't. Know. <laughs> Sorry, I missed the name out there. Jason Statham. Jason who? Jason oh, Statham. <laughs> no. <laughs> so what we're gonna do just before we move on to you guys' questions, 
I want Stephen to pronounce some words for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is just for me. And me. And everybody, probably. Stephen. Will you okay, you know the audiobooks? Neither reader for the audiobooks, this is two for the series, ever contacted me regarding pronunciation. So they're all over the place. Here we go. Alright, let's get it right. Okay. What, how do you say this? Kachinchamel. Yeah, yeah. I think we all got that one. Well, we were all afraid, weren't we? We didn't, we didn't want to say it out loud. What about this one? Kachinarook. No one's ever said that. Hell no. I barely recognize it, actually. Okay, I think we all know how to do this, but let's get confirmation. Talana Mass. This one's bothered me for ages. Do that one for me. Mine. Okay. I've been, I've been saying maybe for ages. Maybe. Maybe she will. And last one. Just do that one for me. Ontos Falak. Now you have it. But no, you're missing it. I miss a ton of them. Tice and D. Tice and D. I didn't want to touch it. Tice and D. I didn't want to touch it. I'm not messing. I thought I'd be the only one who didn't know. Any others? Throw them out. Throw them out. I'm very good. Jagged. Jagged. Crop. Which? Crop. Crop. Yeah, not croupe. I'm the He was one of the characters in um, Cam was running the game, so I was I, I rolled out the character of Crop. Yeah. Did you just speak crap the entire time? Yeah, yeah, in the third person. It was awful. Awesome. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, it sounded uh, Darugistan. Darugistan? Yeah, Darugistan, yeah. Darugistan. I'm listening to the books on the audience. That's awful. Someone I couldn't say for years. Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd say if somebody asked me what these books is about, <laughs> at this stage, like, where, where, where are they? I don't know. Who's he? That's, that's the level we're at now. I'm glad. I'm, listen, when you all go home, he's coming home with me and he's just going to answer questions. That's <laughs> the way it's going to be. Right, so what we're going to do is uh, anybody who has questions, stick their hand up. That's probably like two, two people, really? Two? I'll, I'll get Six? Hello? <laughs> okay, so what we'll do is uh, I'm going to point at you. Okay, so let, you're in the corner. Let's go. You first. Just out of curiosity, you said that most of the characters were played through games. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if that was concurrently or sequentially because I've been in, involved in games where the same characters inhabited the same timelines but in both situations so I'm just wondering were you kind of taking three weeks playing one set three weeks playing the other and no we, we, we alternated we would alternate who ran the game that night <clears throat> right and so but sometimes we'd play both sides um, so for example in Darugistan uh, Cam was Cam came up with the city. He mapped the city and all the rest. And I was playing. Let's see. I was playing Krupp, uh, Relic Nom. Um, Crocus didn't exist. Crocus is uh, for the novel only. Um, so Krupp, Relic Nom, Marillo, And Cam's NPCs were Cole, um, Baruch, uh, the Alchemist, um, Vorkin, people like that. And then we blended the story because I was running the game where he had, um, maybe he was running, we ended up, oh, let's think about this. Because what we did was we converged three campaigns. Um, we were doing the, we were doing Whiskey Jack, um, Fiddler and Hedge, uh, let's see, Fiddler and Hedge, Quick Ben and Kalam. And we would actually split the squad. So some games, um, he was running that campaign at other times. And I think my characters were Quick Ben, Kalam, and Fiddler. And he had the other ones. And then uh, my first character ever rolled up was Anamander Rake. Um, and then we just blended him into the whole storyline. And uh, we played out the, the, the fete um, at the end of Gardens of the Moon. That was actually a game doubt. And, um, but normally, later on, I, we moved from sort of one-on-one -on -one gaming, which I know sounds strange, but uh, where I had a whole group of people, and uh, then I ran them through um, sequentially, or not sequentially, I ran them through in a linear fashion, uh, yeah. the full timeline. The poor guy, 
I did a one-on-one -on -one game with uh, a guy named Mark Paxton McCray, and he rolled up his character, he gave the name to me as Carson Orlong, and then I, I sat down and, and put together a campaign for him. And um, the, the poor man, <laughs> he had no idea what was coming. You know, I, I said, okay, you're living in a tribe in the mountains, and uh, a couple of your friends come up to you, and one of them says, all right, it's time to go down to the valley and kill children. <laughs> and the thing was, Mark had no idea that I turned his character into uh, Teplor, into a total guy. So children, of course, is just short adult people, but he didn't know he was a giant. So he went through this, this horrible existential crisis. <laughs> what is happening here? So, um, yeah, every now and then, uh, yeah, you mess with the heads of people. I mean, if you're running a game, that's the most fun of all. Okay, hands up for the next question. Lady in front. Uh, thank you. I was, when I was reading, there was the concept of hot iron and cold iron mm -hmm. for personalities. And I was wondering, did you invent it or did yep. you take it from somebody? I googled it and I couldn't find it anywhere. Like, nobody yeah. knows it unless they read the friggin' book. Yeah. yeah. I want to yeah. use it in conversations <laughs> and I can't. It does work. But you think about it. When I read it, I was do. like dividing all my friends into those categories. <laughs> yeah, invented on the fly, actually. Yeah. Wow. Next up, you at the back there. That's you. Yay. Um, you said there about like the creating the character along characters, and do you, did you relish in the kind of moralistic dilemmas you see yes. in the characters? And, and most of our gaming was just that, to actually create um, a moral quandary in the players, um, and really mess with their heads. Yeah. So when you wrote kind of like, you know, Whiskey Jack taking the fall for Amanda Wright with all the women in that scene, no, that, that was fiction. That was not game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you deliberately go in saying, I want to make people feel a certain way, or did it just happen along the way and it was the most logical? Um, there, are, there are fantasy writers out there um, who, when they kill characters in their books, leave you wondering whether they killed them for the purposes of boredom on their part, um, or the desire to create a new story. Uh, but for this writing and for the Malazan stuff, um, if I'm going to kill a major character, I want you to feel it. You, there has to be an emotional context to it. Um, and then in order for that to be authentic, I have to feel it first. And if I don't, then I'm, I fail at my task. Call time. Yes. <laughs> Hands up. Let's go right at the back and we'll work our way forward. Sure. Literally, you're at the door. I feel yeah, bad for you. At the door. Um, so, a lot of authors will say that they have what-ifs for what founds their series. Is there a Malazan what-if? And if so, what is it? Uh, for what defines the series? Yeah, like, you know, what if this happened? Like, is there a what-if for the Malazan series? And if so, In terms of the world, the world building and the story? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what if you could create a, a world and a civilization where sexism does not exist? And then, as anthropologists, we said, well, how can you get to that point? Well, fantasy is all about magic. So if magic is accessible to all uh, on the basis of merit, uh, discipline, study, and all the rest, you cannot have a, a gender-based hierarchy of power because it can never be maintained. And so it was a world without sexism. But then we couldn't signpost that because every character in that world doesn't think in those terms, so they wouldn't be, you know, saying, you know, speaking on behalf of, of <coughs> patriarchy or whatever. Um, it's, it's all about access to power, and and so that was kind of the, the big what ifs um, for the series. And oddly enough, I think it wasn't until somebody you know, did a write wrote a review in the, by the third book, Memories of Ice, where they where they actually noticed because it's not present. It, it's it's Significant by its absence. And that's why the uh, female characters running all the way through in all levels of power. Good, que good question. Second last at the back again. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Um, I know you haven't read the book. Which one is your favorite book in the series? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, <laughs> 
I, I, I guess I would define that three ways. Um, to me, the most satisfying to write of the books was Dead House Gates. Because, bear in mind, it, it took me eight years to find a publisher for Gardens of the Moon. So everything was held in check. And you know that eight, eight years was not me constantly flogging the manuscript. Uh, it went out once, it stayed with the publisher in the States for two years before it showed up in the mail. And this is long before electronic stuff, so it's the actual copy um, shows up in the mail. Um, and then 18 months at another US publisher, at, at which point I shelved it. I just put it away. So then I, I ended up living in, in the UK and I sell uh, Gardens of the Moon. And it was like, here I had this, this editor just coming out of nowhere um, who had faith in what I was doing. And it just sort of unleashed me at that point. So um, I was working at Toyota head office in, in, in Red Hill in, uh, in Surrey. And um, I had a, a, a Scion MX-5. Do you guys know what that is? Yeah. yeah? It was a little word processor, a little monochrome word processor. Not much bigger than this. And uh, I wrote Dead Hell Skates on it. And um, I wrote it in my lunch breaks. Uh, at, at, um, and then when I came home from work, I'd stopped at, I lived in Dorking, and I stopped uh, off at Cafe Rouge, and I would write for a couple of hours, and then end up home, you know, heading home. And it felt complete uh, as a book. It just, it did everything I wanted it to do. Um, and I would write the music, and quite often the main soundtrack was Black Hawk Down, because you can do that whole final scene from the wall of Aaron. Everything in that can be done in silence um, to leave no man behind in Black Hawk Down. And I used to play that while I was writing it. So it just ran through my head. This is a um, symphonic piece. So that's one of them. Um, Midnight Tides wrote itself. It just, it just came out. Um, I invented to hold on, on the roof that he was standing on. And, and then I thought, well, maybe I should describe what he's wearing. And I thought, he's not wearing anything. He's wearing a blanket. <laughs> and he just sort of came, uh, came out from nowhere. Um, so that was, that was the most effortless uh, writing. Um, but for me, the, the greatest impact uh, in, for me in the series is Toll the Hounds. And that was, I mean, my father was dying at the time, so the entire novel is uh, a delving into the nature of grief and working through that grief. And also, it's the cipher for the series because the point of view, the voice, this is the first, uh, of, or the only one of the entire 10 book series where you, you know the voice that's driving the narrative is Krupp. And so he's a kind of self-conscious narrator. Uh, so it's metafictional. And that is, that is actually the cipher to, to uh, an alternate reading of the entire series as being metafictional. So um, Toll the Hounds, uh, I think, is, is probably the one that, that stands out the most for me. Put your hands up. Oh, more questions now. More. Everybody's getting brave now. We're all getting brave. Okay, let's go uh, right beside the bar with the blue arm. <laughs> That's you. He's napping. That's you. He's napping. Yeah. Uh, yeah as, as an author, you have never shied away from using the fantasy world to comment on contemporary issues like uh, colonialism or capitalism. Mm -hmm. And if you like, you have published a prologue for "The God Is Not Willing" already, and it feels like it's gonna touch on another contemporary issue, which is like climate change. And mm -hmm. is this something you're going to pursue further? And this is something you want to explore in your in your writing. Um, I don't think I'm going to go very heavily into um, climate change as a um, human-generated event. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind it is, and uh, we've been changing the climate since the Neolithic. Um, but oh, I don't know how to. How I would answer that. I mean, every novel is is a dialogue with with the world around the real world during the time it was written. Um, but the style I'm approaching with uh, the Carson trilogy is much closer to Gardens of the Moon than it is to the later books of the series. So it rips along fairly fast. 
Um, so I guess I, I guess that's an answer to your question. I, 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 yeah. Hands up. Right, we're, we're moving forward now. Glasses, blondy hair. That's you. Um, what is your process for constructing these big intricate plots in your novel? Um. Hmm. Uh, weed. Yeah. No. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, I stopped that pretty early on. I mean, I left it behind my archaeology days. Um, Points. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the brain gets too lazy. You just can't do that. Um, so, I had certain scenes in that I knew were going to show up in The Crippled God. And they were some fairly major ones. Um, and then it was simply a question of writing my way to get there. But to, to not to not rush myself, to be very patient about it, and to build, because those scenes only work if you carry the emotional impact of the, the previous nine books. Um, one of them is is characterized by adjectivore, uh, wordlessly making a sound, a scream, basically. And that only means anything if you've read and understood what she's gone through to get there. Do you see what I mean? So I needed to really be careful in my preparations to get up to those scenes, to the payoffs. Um, and so I would be foreshadowing through all 10 books. It was a great, it, it turned out by accident, but I think, um, yeah, probably even with Gardens of the Moon, my editor was a wonderful guy, stayed with me uh, through the entire series here in the UK. Uh, tour, I get a different editor every month. I don't know what's going on there. but. Uh, Bantam UK has been brilliant, and Simon Taylor stayed with me. Um, and he would he would do this edit, and the manuscript would come back to me. He'd say, "Well, you know, it's a little bit long along this area. Can can we cut this out? Maybe this and, and leave, make it a bit leaner." And I'd write back saying, "Well, actually, what happens in those two paragraphs comes back in book seven <laughs> <laughs> or book nine. Um, so I can't cut it out." And finally, he gave up. <laughs> And so it worked. It was brilliant. And, uh, but the thing was, I wasn't lying. You know, it, it does, it's all built that way. It's built to, to slowly add resonance to every event that's occurring until you get to, where are you, halfway through Cripple God? I am, um, I'm probably the least experienced person right here. I started Cripple God about a week ago. So I'm hoping not... You can ruin it. It doesn't matter. No, you have no idea what's coming. Personally, I started reading, book, reading these books about a year ago. And uh, it's been my everything I've done in every waking moment that hasn't evolved. My actual life has been glued to these books. And uh, hence my first question being, what's wrong with him? <laughs> because I, I don't know where I, what's going on anymore. I, my whole life is wrong. <laughs> and, um, I, I began Cripple God maybe maybe four days ago. I think I'm maybe a quarter way through, maybe. Wow. And um, yeah, I'm burning. I'm burning. My girlfriend doesn't even know what my name is anymore. <laughs> <laughs> your the dogs don't talk to me. Nothing happened. No bills getting paid. Um, so I've just been doing this, um, uh, and I'm personally I'm committed. The next two years is just going through all this stuff, every side book, and then start again. How many people have finished the series here? Uh, is there anybody Five who hasn't? Times. Sorry? Five times. Wow. Five, Five times. times. I'm following you from the beginning. Right. Okay, so were there people who haven't finished the series? I just bought the remaining five books because I was waiting for okay. them to finish. Okay. So. Close your ears, folks. No, no, no. Not, no, no spoilers. Yeah, but, let's, um, keep, let's keep it civil. Relax. Yeah. Fight outside um, afterwards. <laughs> who, who here is familiar with Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey? Okay. Well, a lot of novels basically try to emulate that. They create a character who takes, undertakes the hero's journey. I did not want to do that. What I wanted to do was have characters undertake parts of the hero's journey. And some would complete those parts, others would fail at those parts. I wanted the hero's journey to be the reader's. So to get from book one to book ten is the hero's journey. <laughs> 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 Hands up.
<laughs> okay, joint lad. You know what? You know what? You look like Joe Abercrombie. Did you know that? <laughs> so what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> Let's have you. I'm going to move it forward. All right. Who is the most powerful character in the entire Arya. series? Crap. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah. And the funniest. Yeah. Sticky donuts. <laughs> Hands up again. Okay. This chap here, beard. That's you. Yeah, I know half of us. I know. I know. This is the way it's going to work out. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's good. You played as a player and as a GM for many campaigns over a long period of time. How do you keep the campaigns going? And keep players actually showing up um, and actually able to show up on such a long-term and ambitious. Man, point. find better friends. <laughs> <laughs> really? Of course they should show up. <laughs> <laughs> if, the, if the microphone wasn't attached, he would have dropped it. <laughs> Hands up. Well, get over to you. You. you We'll get to you in a second. Let's you chat. Uh, how closely do you and Cam work together on the books? Because there's not many, but a couple discrepancy I found between yours and his. Oh no doubt, we hardly <laughs> work together at all. Um, we meet up once a year, uh, usually once a year, uh, at a conference in Orlando uh, called International Conference on the Fantastic in the Arts. It's more of an academic conference, and we go there, hang out by the pool, and uh, get drunk and talk about what we're um, what we're working on. And so we work through some stories there, and then he goes back and does what he does. And um, often I don't see the manuscript until the book's been published. Okay, so sorry, that was Orlando, and that was Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> we want to have a word with him, yeah? More than one. Hands up. Okay, let's go to you. Yeah. Uh, so they, you started from RPGs, and lots of them leave uh, magic, how it feels vague. Do you have an idea of how it would feel to like open a warren, or is it really is it like only describable as a metaphor? I'm glad you used the word metaphor. Um, a lot of people, a lot of writers of, of um, fantasy, they end up creating a magic system that is basically a replacement for technology. So they've got all the rules, all the rules are laid out, and once you do that, you've lost the purpose of magic and fantasy. Because the original purpose of magic and fantasy is to invoke a sense of wonder and mystery. And so once you've explained it all, you, you've lost it. Um, so we made a point of never explaining the magic. <laughs> As you may have noticed. <coughs> Hands up. If I get you guys last, right? You guys are going to be the last group here. You, you don't want to stop. Put your hand down. I'm greedy. You. Yeah. Um, I just wondering about um, so how did you make the transition between between studying archaeology and anthropology and working in the field to becoming an author and becoming a full time author then after? Um, well, field work is, is summer. You get paid to work in the, you know on a dig um, during the summer, and so I continued doing that um, even when I was taking the writing program at the University of Victoria. So the winters I would do, uh, I'd learned how to basically be a short story writer. That's, that's what I learned. I've never learned to be a novelist. And I still don't know how to be a novelist. Um, so in many ways, this is the world's longest short story. No, I'm not kidding, because it, you, write, you, you write it differently. You write a short story very differently from how you write a novel. In a novel, you can, you can luxuriate, you can wander around. Um, short stories, every sentence has to have at least two levels of meaning. And as, as you have all discovered, especially with rereads, you see that that's how it works. And um, there's, I know there's a, a group of people doing a podcast that um, have just finished uh, discussing Gardens of the Moon. One of them has, re has read it before, but the other two are new. And of those two new people, one of them has, as her only experience in fantasy, reading Hunger Games. And when I heard that, I thought, you poor, poor girl. And even worse, she um, used the audiobook 
before Gardens in the Moon. So she was utterly lost and hated the novel from start to finish. And I'm not surprised because you sometimes you gotta go back on a few lines. You gotta you actually gotta go back and think what's being said here. Um, and because I learned within universities, um, the push there is is for he said she said. So you show you don't tell, right? You, you don't dump the exposition all over the place. So in many ways, it may seem like a dense like dense writing style, but it's actually very terse style. I don't give you a lot. Um, and so it's up to you to work that stuff out. Uh, so, yeah, anyways, it's, um, that transition was fairly, fairly straightforward. Uh, it took a long time for me to actually become a full-time writer. I guess I've been full-time for about 19 years now. Hanzo, yourself there. Hello. Um, so whenever you decided to write Midnight Tales, do you feel there was risk involved? Because it was a completely new continent. The only um, character that we knew was Charles Sangar. Yeah. And so whenever it came to you, it was your producers going, well, Steve, what are you doing here? Um, yeah, and I, I would tell them, this is the, the third point of the triangle. So, you know, this is this is the last new place and new characters we're going to be sort of be. And, and, and then the entire series ultimately converges on that spot. Yeah, it was a bit of a risk, I knew that. But but then they were all in, right? They, they, were <laughs> they couldn't back out. <laughs> Too late. Hello, yourself there at the back. Yeah. That you? All right. I wanted to ask you. Taxi about man, you. we waited on you outside. We did. We were all waiting. <laughs> the reason you sat here for five minutes is this chap got lost in the cab, and we waited for him outside. I, 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 hang on, before you begin, he made it. He made it. Let's go. What interests me is your state of attention while writing. While you talked about uh, being a writer, when I read your books, and I read them five times, I sent, touched a kind of magic that is not in the words, but in the state of attention that you had while writing. Intention? Attention. Attention. That something you were, the way I experienced it and the way I read them, I went into a kind of trance state. And there is, this is why those people are here, because they were not just by technique or by words, but by a sense of magic that was touching their personal life. For me, uh, this is one question. And mm -hmm. the second is, I was a soldier, a medic, and a healer in my life. Mm -hmm. And you wrote about those roles as if you really were there. And I know you were not in war, mm -hmm. while I was. And I wondered, from where did you get this intimate, personal knowledge of war, of healing? That's the question. Okay. So, two questions, basically, yes? Okay. All right, uh, the first one, attention. Um, remember I mentioned that Tola Hounds is the cipher. And when I mention the fact that this series is metafictional, uh, do, do people understand what I'm saying there? Right? Metafictional is a kind of self-conscious storytelling. So it's, it's... When you fall into a fiction, you're reading a book, um, you kind of do a, a mental shift where you are you're flowing into that world, um, and it's as if you're reading a, a history book or something along those lines. So in other words, what is reported to you is what is real, and what is reported to you is always authentic, is always honest, is always um, factual. But of course, the structure of short storytelling is actually the opposite of that. Everything is done with intention to create an emotional effect. And so the entire, the entire ten book series is actually the voice of a storyteller who is writing and giving you only those details that that storyteller deems necessary to bring you to an emotional point. And so it, it, it is, is this making sense? Yes. Yeah, so it, it's, that's why it's metafictional. Uh, that's why Krupp is actually uh, Steven Erickson at the same time, right? I am creating, I'm creating, I'm creating for an emotional uh, effect. And um, 
and of course, the, the whole process involves me actually experiencing those emotional effects before you guys do. So um, I'm, I'm accompanying you on that journey. Um, but I do it from the, from the creative standpoint before anybody gets to see it. So I have to take it on faith that I have readers out there who will follow me. So that's the first one. Does that make sense? Yes. Yep. Okay. The second one, um, I worked in Central America, uh, in Belize, uh, on an archaeology dig um, back in 1983. And when the dig wrapped up, um, I'll backtrack a little bit. When you get, when you're on a dig, especially in Canada, um, especially at, at that time, you end up on a fairly, in a fairly isolated environment. Uh, generally, you're, you're in tents, there's nine or ten of you, um, and you're out in the bush. And eventually, or very quickly actually, the civilized veneer of, of people's behavior just falls away, and you get to find out who they really are. Um, sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes it's, it's um, Jack of the Shining. Uh, and I'm not kidding. I, I, my direction when I got, we, in Canada you call it bushed, uh, bush fever. Um, when I get bushed, I get more comical, but a lot of people go the opposite way. And so I did have uh, a, a co-worker attack me with a hatchet once, so, <laughs> because I said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, so that kind of experience on digs really informed the squads of the bridge burners. Um, so that's one side of things. But anyways, back to Central America in 83. Uh, after the dig, I headed down to Honduras, um, discovered that it was a funnel for gun running um, into Nicaragua. And so I ended up in Nicaragua and um, then in Guatemala. I'm not gonna tell a lot of that story. Uh, Guatemala was in the middle of a civil war at the time and you had a massive population movement um, all through the Paten heading up into Mexico. Um, the the uh, aristocracy, if you will, the Latino aristocracy of Guatemala um, were driving the native people off the mountainsides using the army. Um, basically, any Guatemalan coffee you drink now is black coffee. It was just horrendous what was going on. Um, so uh, entirely by accident, I found myself in the, in the midst of all that. And um, I actually spent three days tracking my way through the jungle, trying to get back to Belize, um, dodging uh, military vehicles. And um, it all started with, with me on a, a tarmac, um, on, on an, an airstrip in the jungle in the Bataan, with an M16 to the back of my head. So, um, but I eventually made it through. And, and, but I did experience, I sort of wandered like a ghost um, through a fairly war-ravaged place. And I know a lot of that has stayed with me. Um, and, and so when, when, when I'm writing, oh, cheers. Delicious points. So when I'm writing this stuff, I try to, try to sort of circle my way back to the emotions I was experiencing there. Um, the, worst, the worst day was in a crossroads outside a village that had been abandoned. And um, there were three cane cutters had been executed against a, a pig wall right beside me. And I was waiting for a cane truck or something to come by um, to get a ride. And um, there was a goat um, crying in the village endlessly. So finally I wandered into the village and I did find the goat. It was in a, a pen in the backyard of a, a very, very poor ramshackle hut. And fire ants had found it. And because it was tied to a stake, it couldn't run away. So they were in the eyes, the nose, the ears, up the anus, all the rest. And it's the only animal I've ever killed. Uh, I found a, a broken machete and, and I killed it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know, you spend a whole afternoon with three, three corpses. Um, it's, it's a pretty strange experience. So I went, got back, made it back to Belize and uh, went out to the Keys and bought an ounce of sensibility and I just melted down for about 10 days. <laughs> but you know, I get letters from, from veterans all the time, uh, especially ones who are recovering from severe injuries. I recommend your books to people to you, with PTSD yeah. because they show a way out of it. And, and, and I, I get, you just had a chill through me because I get about a dozen of those a year. 
Thank you. Hanzo, let's go over here. So when are we going to get a trilogy about the adventures of T. Holly Me's Chicken? <laughs> the whole the chicken asked Terry Goodkin. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I don't think there'll be an adventure. An adventure for them. No. They've done their part. He's king. King to hold the only. Yeah. Job done. Job done. Hands up. Back and back. Um, just following back to what I started with, which was the gaming, because now you have me curious exactly what point in the books do you get past the material that you were elaborating on from campaigns into wholly new creation? A lot of it is new creation. Um, a lot of what our gaming built the background history. And that's why Cam is now writing uh, The Origins of Empire um, with Kellerman and Dancer. That is what we gained. And so, if you think about it, Gardens of the Moon starts after all of that. Okay. And secondly, would you consider taking the suggestion of not doing foreign dates out of war as... Um, I still I still volunteer. Um, I've worked I've worked for a few years uh, in southern Italy in Puglia uh, on a very interesting site. And um, but I am I, I did realize after Mongolia that I was getting too old for this crap. And so um, I, I try to be more civilized in, in my approach now. So these are well-run digs. They're not really flaming idiots like they were in Russia. I mean in Mongolia. Right. Just as we get the end of this before we go on the sign. And anybody else? Right, it's yourself. Uh, which of the supporting characters has stuck with you all these years? So which of the which? Of your supporting character, like the supporting? minor characters, like minor for example. Yeah. <laughs> As in, like the <laughs> certain Marines, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. like, like Vastly Blank, for example. Vastly uh, Blank, yeah. Um, which just stay with me. No, I think I, 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 I was fairly content with, with their, their fates. Um, I'm not going to give away too much uh, because of this generally is not well, my fault. Yeah. Um, but uh, the only thing I can promise is some some time in the Carson trilogy you will meet some of the regulars who were there in the Cripple God. <laughs> and I have revealed earlier today in the coffee clutch, uh, somebody said that one of the favorite characters was Spindle. Is that you? Yeah. And I said, well, you're in luck, because he's probably the only bridge burner who is going to be in the car set. Anyway, folks, thank you very much to Stephen. We're sticking around, it's not all over. It's not all over. Uh, Stephen's got a sign, whatever you brought with you. And then when we're done, we're going to go upstairs and we're going to drink I'm my points. I'm not signing anything. He's done. He's done. <laughs> I, have, I have to tell people, when I, when I first asked Stephen, uh, I'd seen he was over for Worldcon. I said, do you, do you want to get together with some of your fans and do some signings and some Q&As? He said, yeah, absolutely. And I said, do you need anything? And he said, Guinness. <laughs> that was literally it. Yeah. So, everybody, thank you very much to Stephen. Yeah. And everybody wants to get together, get yourself together. We're going to the space here. Farm a lion. And uh, Stephen's going to sign all your books and your uh, your arses. <laughs> <laughs>